Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham and this is the platform I use to engage culture through the lens of the Christian worldview. Now surprisingly, this episode is not going to be about the election on Tuesday. Honestly, uh, I just, I can't, I, I, there's not a take out there that hasn't been made and I'm just ready for the madness to be over. So you want my take, Christian? Go vote your conscience and then get back to the much more significant work of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There, that's my take. So no politics today. Instead, I want to take the opportunity to speak to a crisis in our culture and in our churches, uh, one that I personally have been thrust into and um, I have unintentionally become an opinion that people are seeking out. During the rise of the Me Too movement, I had a tweet thread that got a lot of attention. It was just after the legendary, infamous pornographer Hugh Hefner died. This is what I said in response to his death. It is as if the death of Hugh Hefner has broken a spell that has long imprisoned our society. The king of sexual predation is dead, and captives of the kingdom are finally free to tell their stories. And I say, let the stories come out. Let them all come out. This wickedness so transcends our normal divides that the whataboutism game we play has become laughable. No matter your tribe, your tribe is guilty. So let every attempt to deflect or defend come to an end and let us instead listen and learn from the courage of the abused. They are our prophets now with voices that will no longer allow us to hide or ignore this epidemic. Indeed, the long overdue purge has begun and may it not relent until every hidden darkness faces the light of justice. May the abused be emboldened to expose the truth and abusers tremble that their exposure is drawing near. May the broken find healing and the contrite find forgiveness. And may God yet have mercy on our perverse culture of which we all stand guilty. I meant those words years ago when I wrote them, and I still do. Let every story come out. What I didn't know when I tweeted um, those words is that shortly thereafter, stories from the church I pastor and love would come out. I'm not going to take the time to recount that investigation. I'll provide a link in the description that provides those details. But as many of you know, our church went through a investigation and our church again finds itself undergoing another independent investigation for new allegations. Now, I'm definitely not going to talk about that at all um, until the investigation is complete, not on this podcast or in any other venue. But all of this has led to a lot of attention toward our church in general and me in particular. Now, as you will hear in a moment, our response was guided by more qualified experts that really, they deserve the attention and the credit. But it is what it is. Our church has been put into the spotlight in this area in particular, and I am regularly contacted as if I'm an expert in this area. I'm not an expert, but I am experienced. And so what I thought I would do is take all of my experience and record one podcast that could kind of be my go-to resource for anybody who asks, both for pastors and churches who reach out and, and um, want my thoughts, but also, quite frankly, for the media. I, I just got done doing two interviews um, on this topic, and, and 
what I want is something that I can point people to that could just say, hey, here, these are my thoughts on the issue. So that's what this is. Um, again, less about our previous investigation and certainly not in any way about our current investigation that I'm not free to talk about. Um, this is more my general thoughts about the sexual abuse crisis in the church, and make no mistake, it is a crisis. I want to organize my thoughts by answering uh, two questions. Why is the church uniquely susceptible to sexual abuse, and what can the church do to protect against sexual abuse? So first, why is the church culture so susceptible to sexual abuse? I'm going to give us four reasons, four unique aspects to church life and culture uh, that makes the church a particularly vulnerable institution to sexual abuse, really all forms of abuse. And I've even alliterated them for you. Four reasons, authority, autonomy, anonymity, and antinomy. Antinomy is A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y, fancy word. I'll explain what it means when we get there. Okay, authority. So submission is a crucial part of church life, and I, I make no apologies for that. Uh, the other three things I'm going to give you um, are mistakes. This I do not think is a mistake. That is to say, I'm not willing to give up on the idea of ecclesial authority. We all need authority. The answer to abuse of authority is not self-autonomy, because this only opens one up to the abuse of self, meaning I am an incredibly harmful authority over myself. <laughs> I am my own worst enemy, as they say. So I do need authority. You need authority. We all need authority. Only it must be proper authority, righteous, just, loving, humble authority. So I don't make apologies for the concept of authority within the church. And I would note that any institution you join will have some form of intrinsic authority. It's inescapable. Having said that, authority is a very dangerous thing, particularly when it's spiritual in nature. What is unique about religious authority is that we are trusting the deepest parts of ourself, uh, the longings of the soul, eternal uh, truths, moral convictions, our shameful failures. These, these weightier matters are what we entrust to religious authority, which in turn gives religious authority a more intrinsic weight. So when I speak to survivors of abuse at the hands of church or ministry leaders, again and again, they use the same common phrases. Things like, I trusted him. Um, he was like a father to me. He was a mentor. Um, he led me to Jesus. He discipled me. And even when the abuse happens, uh, survivors often think it can't be abuse. It can't be wrong because of the nature of that religious authority. And even when they do realize that it is abuse, they are hesitant to come forward because they developed such an esteem for their abuser. So the point I'm making is that because church and or ministry authority is so unique, it is uniquely susceptible to predatorial and abusive behavior, especially when it's coupled with my next point, autonomy. Authority together with autonomy is a toxic combination. Churches are notoriously autonomous institutions, which allows churches to function outside any formal accountability structures, unlike the rest of the world. <laughs> In fact, most um, evangelical churches create their own accountability, where they, in essence, well, not in essence, they literally police themselves. Now, my denomination, I'm going to talk about Presbyterianism here in a minute, 
in the Presbyterian Church in America, there are formalized structures of accountability and discipline and judicial uh, church courts if necessary. But most evangelical churches are congregationalist churches, wherein um, an autonomous congregation decides for itself how they will do accountability if they will do it at all. And so obviously, an autonomous institution without accountability is just ripe for abuse, whether it be sexual or any other form of pastoral abuse. But even more than that, an autonomous institution is also ripe for groupthink and echo chamber mentality, meaning autonomy allows an institution to create its own culture unto itself, a culture that makes excuse for abuse, normalizes abuse, covers up abuse, and all of these things that we are um, seeing churches continually be exposed for. You see these headlines of these churches, and what you find in all these situations is there was a culture of cover-up and self-protection. There was a, a fortification, ingrown thing going on where it was protect the institution, protect the ones in authority at all costs, even over the interests of the victims. That happens because they are allowed to exist in autonomy. And this is not just Christianity. All religions are notorious for creating a cult-like autonomy unto themselves that makes room for a culture that seems normal within, but outsiders look in at it and think, this is crazy. And so it goes without saying uh, that this religious dynamic, this autonomous dynamic is ripe for abuse. So authority, autonomy, thirdly, anonymity. Now, sadly, it's very easy to live in anonymity within the church context. Our doors are wide open, as they should be. The problem, however, is that once people enter those wide open doors, you are actually able to immerse yourself within the community without ever being truly known at all. This is an epidemic in American churches, and it needs to come to an end. Our communities must be open communities, but you should never be able to join the community without being known by the community. But this is, this is the norm, not the exception in evangelical churches. It is very easy not just to join a church community, but to be placed in a position of, of service or even authority within that community. And not one person in that community truly know who you are. And then we wonder why predators seek out churches and ministries in particular. So the former pastor of our church, who the, our independent investigation um, did uncover was abusing students, could, with a little bit of lying, easily find another church, easily volunteer at another church, heck, even find a job at another church, just as long as it wasn't a PCA church. Friends, that's a terrifying reality, and it's a reality made possible because of Christian anonymity. Okay, last one, antinomy. Now, this is, this is the fancy word. Antinomy is just another word for paradox. Two truths that seem to be in contradiction when, in fact, the two can and must exist together. And there's a false antinomy within churches, and it has to do with the relationship between grace and justice. Now, the reason why I choose the word antinomy is, is not only because it starts with an A and it, it keeps my alliteration going, but it, it, it is because there's a theological error that actually bears the same root word, antinomianism. Antinomianism is the false doctrine that because grace abounds, sin may abound. 
it wrongly interprets grace as making an allowance for sin and even the consequences of sin. And this false teaching is often weaponized against those who are sinned against. So for instance, an abuser repents, receives the grace and forgiveness of Jesus who indeed can atone for the foulest of sins. All of that's true, gospel, gospel, gospel. What is untrue, however, is that this person should be spared the consequences of their sin. What is untrue is that this person should not have special measures in place to ensure the sin does not occur again. But churches tend to extend grace, I think well-intended, because of the you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound culture that we, that we love and we should love. But churches tend to extend grace and then expect the victims to get over it. Expect the community to welcome an abuser back into the normal rhythms of community. Because after all, isn't that the gospel? And the answer is no. That's not the gospel. That is a truncated gospel of cheap grace and no justice. I pray regularly for the brokenness and repentance of our former pastor who abused um, folks at my church. I hope he repents, and yes, God's grace awaits the penitent. And I think measures should be in place such that he is never allowed to be alone with other students in any church ever again. And a sign of true repentance is that he himself would welcome that and say, that's what I need. So never ever believe the lie of antinomianism that says grace abounds, therefore let sin abound. That doctrinal error is exploited by abusers in churches everywhere who exploit our culture of grace to prey upon the vulnerable. So those are the four reasons why I think the Christian subculture is uniquely susceptible to predators. And unless the culture changes, we should continue to expect abuse to flourish. These headlines are not going to stop until the culture changes. So how do we change it? Diagnosing the problem does nothing for us unless we have real solutions to the problem. Well, again, I'm not an expert, but I am experienced. So let me tell you from my experience over the past three years of really living in this stuff, how I think we can address this epidemic uh, of evil in our churches. What I want to do is that I want to go, go back through those four things and, and give you countermeasures for each of them. And again, I've alliterated them. So, so here's what I believe needs to happen. Authority needs accountability. Autonomy needs advisories. Anonymity needs authenticity. And antinomy needs accuracy. Okay, first, authority needs accountability. Again, I believe in authority. I think it's a good thing, and I am unwilling to throw out the baby with the bathwater. That said, authority must, and I emphasize must, exist in formalized structures of accountability. I cannot overstate how important this is in our age of celebrity pastors that sit at the top of their own personality cults. I don't care how gifted your pastor is. I don't care how charismatic your pastor is. I don't care how compelling their sermons and teachings are. I don't care how godly they may appear to you, and I certainly don't care how famous they are. If they are not themselves living under accountability, do not, I repeat, do not submit to their leadership. Never submit to authority that is not itself submitting to authority. And when I say submit to authority, I am not saying a group of self-appointed yes-men. That's actually worse than a pastor outside of authority. 
because it only multiplies the unaccountable authority, meaning uh, the only thing worse than one leader outside accountability is a group of echo chamber leaders outside authority. I hate to use this as a moment to plug Presbyterianism, but alas, I'm, I'm a Presbyterian because I believe in it. Ironically, hierarchy church structures and congregational church structures share the same problem. So, uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention are literally on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to church governance. And yet, they are both strange bedfellows in this. They both exist outside accountability. One is an autonomous hierarchy of its own accountability with unaccountable leaders in authority sitting on top. The other is an autonomous congregation wherein a leader can easily form a culture of his own authority and no other congregation can do anything about it according to congregationalist polity. In both cases, what is missing is accountability. Okay, now I'm a Presbyterian. I understand that not everybody's going to agree with me on that, and, and congregationalists are never going to be Presbyterian, but there has to be a way to somehow hold to your doctrine of autonomy and, and bring in some accountability. But I'll, you know, that's not for me to figure out. I'm a Presbyterian, not just because I think it works, because I see it in Scripture. A plurality of elders leading in a model of mutual submission and accountability. So take our previous investigation. Do you know how that came about? A complaint was made to a presbytery, so a higher court of authority. Um, the pastor was defrocked or stripped of his credentialing by that presbytery, and then it was communicated back to me that you need to know that a pastor that was at your church at one time has been defrocked because of a sexual abuse. And within three weeks, we had a congregational meeting here and had begun to take steps to address this issue. That's how it should work. So as horrific as our situation was, and it, and it was and is horrific, I couldn't imagine if it took place in a context where there was no formalized structures of accountability and authority. So authority needs accountability. Next, autonomy needs advisories. No matter the church system of government, inevitably, and yes, even within Presbyterianism, inevitably a church will exist with some measure of autonomy. I am um, obviously a believer in the First Amendment if you listen to my previous podcast. I discuss the brilliance of separation of church and state. I don't think the state should be regulating churches. But that doesn't mean I don't think churches shouldn't seek regulations themselves. I believe that religious institutions should both welcome and pursue outside advisors, especially in areas where we have proven to be particularly susceptible and, I mean, I don't know how many more scandals we need to show that the issue of sexual abuse in the Christian church is proving to be a susceptible area. So for the life of me, I don't know why churches don't just say, hey, we need some help here. We're not trauma experts. We're not trained in the ways of sexual predators. We're not child protection specialists. So here's an idea. Why don't we seek the advice from those that are? Now, I've gotten way too much credit publicly for the way our churches handled abuse, as if it was me. I'll let you in on a secret. I'm not an expert in this stuff. I'm an expert in scripture and theology. I'm not an expert on sexual abuse. You know who is? Boz Chavigian, the director of 
GRACE, the independent investigation um, that we used, the, the organization that we used. Um, he's also an attorney, and he was one of the first people I called when allegations came to me. Rachel Den Hollander, who I have on speed dial, walking me through things on a regular basis. Uh, Sergeant Randall Combs, Lex in the police department, who answers my calls and talks me through what to do. How about this one for uh, you Kentuckians? Uh, Matt Jones of Kentucky Sports Radio. For those outside Kentucky, and th this guy Matt Jones um, is one of the most prominent voices in our state, public voices in our state. He knows the way of um, public stuff. And I vividly remember when the allegations started surfacing about our former pastor a few years ago, calling Matt and saying, public stuff is starting to happen. I have no idea what to do with this. I'm freaking out. You live in the public. What do you do? This is what he said to me. Robert, you have two choices. You can do what most churches do, which is you could just maybe share a little bit, but hide most of it, and then wait for people like me to get to the bottom of it and tell your story. Or you could tell a story. You can come clean. And I guarantee if your church will prioritize transparency, our city and state will thank you for it. And he was right. And that conversation was an epiphany for me. Why not just be transparent? So listen, I'm, I'm really not trying to name drop here. I'm really not. I'm just trying to be honest with you. You think I know what I'm doing? You think our church knows what it's doing? No. Well, I, I, I shouldn't say that. I, I will be honest. We do know what we're doing. Um, we do know how to be a safe church for survivors and defend a church against abusers. Now we do know how to respond when allegations emerge. But the only way we got there is because we actually invited outside advisors. It's not pleasant to open yourself up like that. The echo chamber is exceedingly more comfortable. But predators love insulated echo chambers without outside counsel. And most importantly, I know I need to move on for this point, but I got to say this. Most importantly, if and when allegations arise, pastors, churches, if and when allegations arise, never, ever, 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 is that enough evers? Ever attempt to handle it internally outside independent investigation. Release control. Not an internal investigation that your attorney does. An outside independent investigation to get the outside counsel of outside professionals. That was the best move we made and the reason why we are doing it again. So what does autonomy need? Autonomy needs advisories. Okay, what does anonymity need? It needs authenticity. Now that's this is very simple and very biblical. Uh, churches can't just be communities. They must be authentic communities. Now, that's cool to say these days, right? Everybody's into authenticity. Um, but we only view that through the lens of your personal spiritual needs, meaning we often talk about it individually. It's good for you to be authentic. It's good for you to be fully known. You can't grow as a Christian if you are not authentic and you don't let people in on your life and all that stuff, which is true. But you know what else? You know who else it's good for? The community. A community is not safe unless everyone in the community is known. So yes, you need to be authentic. That's part of your spiritual journey. You can't grow in Christ unless people know you and you are living in accountability and you're getting help for your particular issues and all that stuff, which is true. But a community can't be healthy if we're not collectively known. Simply put, churches must recapture the age-old practice of church discipline. 
that's a bad word and a bad concept in our culture, church discipline. But in its truest sense, it's a beautiful thing. It's not, it's not punitive as much as it is just discipleship that simply does not allow members of a community to exist in anonymity. Church discipline in its most noble form is a relentless pursuit of an authentic community where everyone, including the leadership, everyone is known. Okay, last one. Antinomy needs accuracy. More specifically, the heresy of antinomianism needs the accuracy of the gospel. We must reject the truncated view of the gospel for a more accurate one. The gospel is the good news of grace and justice to the world. It is not only forgiveness of sins, but justice against sin. I mentioned Rachel Den Hollander, who, as you probably know, has emerged as a leader in this movement. She was the whistleblower on um, Larry Nasser and the systemic abuse that was taking place in U.S. gymnastics. And that judge did a beautiful thing, allowing every single victim to have a moment in court to speak to their abuser, um, Larry Nasser. And, and Rachel Den Hollander's testimony got a lot of attention. Christians went crazy over it. But they went crazy over it because in her testimony, she did extend the gospel to her abuser. She did say, repent, and I do believe Jesus can forgive you. And she said, just as I have forgiven you. So she, yes, she looked at her abuser and she preached the gospel and said, I've forgiven you, Jesus can forgive you, and the Christian world went wild with this. Amazing grace, and indeed, it's amazing. But it was only that short little clip from her testimony that went viral. What didn't go viral as much was the rest of her testimony, which led to a Christianity Today piece entitled, My Larry Nasser Testimony Went Viral, But There's More to the Gospel Than Forgiveness. Let me quote her words to you here. Forgiveness can be really misapplied. Taken within the context of my statement, with the call for justice and with what I have done to couple forgiveness and justice, it should not be misunderstood. But I have found it very interesting, to be honest, that every single Christian publication or speaker that has mentioned my statement has only ever focused on the aspect of forgiveness. But very few, if any of them, have recognized what else came with that statement which was a swift and intentional pursuit of God's justice. Both of those are biblical concepts. Both of those represent Christ. We do not do well when we focus on only one of them, end quote. And she's right. Christ came not only to give liberty to those who were oppressed, but also to enact righteous justice against the oppressors. And this also must be the mission of the church. We should be the leaders of the world in both grace and justice. But I fear we have embraced a gospel that is only grace and no justice. We have to renounce antinomianism in favor of a more accurate picture of the gospel where grace and justice go hand in hand, where Jesus came to offer forgiveness to the unjust and to enact judgment against all injustice. And a church must hold that tension. And it starts in our churches. Our churches must practice grace and justice, must proclaim the good news that abusers can be forgiven of their sins, and the good news that this community has no allowance for abuse. So, authority needs accountability. 
Autonomy needs advisories. Anonymity needs authenticity. Antinomy needs accuracy. In my now three years processing this, um, these would be my takeaways. Now, I've gone longer than normal. I realize that. But let me, let me, let me close. This is, this is needed. Let me close with a word to one group of folks that may be listening in. I do hope this is a resource for churches and pastors and media and whomever. But I also hope this will be a resource uh, for survivors of abuse at the hands of the church. And the resource is, is simply this. I hope that these thoughts um, will bring some measure of healing and hope to your story. I am sorry that our churches have not been what I've been discussing. More so, I am deeply sorry for your personal experience. And I wouldn't blame you, in the least, for being done with Christianity, for who wants anything to do with the place of their abuse. All I know to say is that I condemn those who harmed you. I condemn them. And I still had the audacity to commend the Jesus they claimed they were following but were not. Jesus is so good that he can heal the very abuse done in his name. And not just that. Again, grace and justice together, right? Not only can he heal abuse done in his name, there is a special measure of condemnation for those who abuse in his name. Mark 12, 40, if you want to proof text that. So I know you're angry, but did you know Jesus is angry too? More than that, I know you want healing, and Jesus wants that too. My one request is to pick up your Bible once again, perhaps for the first time in a long time, and read one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, any of them will do, and reintroduce yourself to Jesus. Let those words of that Gospel, not your experience at a church, redefine Jesus for you. And what you will discover is a Savior of prodigious grace and justice. Yes, He can and will heal you. But more than that, he can and will righteously, justly, dare I say furiously, vindicate you. And by the way, because I can't resist, if by chance there is someone listening to this podcast who is an abuser, um, who's pastor or leader in, in a church or uh, Christian ministry who, who's an abuser, my word to you is to repent. Repent lest you face the wrath of the Lion of Judah that makes a millstone tied around your neck and cast into the depths of the sea preferable. Cast yourself upon Jesus and plead his forgiveness. And the sign that that plea is authentic is that you will come clean and you will plead for the forgiveness of those you have harmed. You need to repent and you need to do it today because the day of his vindication and justice draws near. But to those survivors of church abuse, I'm sorry for what was done to you in the name of Jesus. Please know that's not the name of Jesus. His name is grace. His name is justice. Thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back soon for another episode of Every Square Inch.